right, all right. If you could begin making your way back to your seats, and as you do, grab your Bibles. Head on over to the book of First John. That is where we're going to be here this morning, First John chapter 3 specifically. We're going to look in chapter 3 at just two verses, but I'll be real honest with you. We're going, to be, we're going to be a little bit of everywhere here this morning because what we are going to begin to do this week um, amounts to be follow-up from where we were the last several weeks in thinking of uh, God's design and what he created and thinking of how the temptation came and thinking of then the fall when Adam took the fruit and ate and as he sinned as the representative for all men and women who would come and live thereafter, we've all then sinned in Adam. But then there's the promise and, and Christmas is about the promise. It's about God sending the serpent crusher in the form of Jesus Christ as an infant baby born of the Virgin Mary to crush and defeat and to destroy and to then set in motion God's redemptive plan, I shouldn't say set in motion as if it wasn't already in motion, but you have all of the Old Testament leading up to the point of the cross, and then you have the New Testament looking back to the cross with anticipation for when everything is fully and finally completely redeemed. And so Christmas is about that, and in that sense, Christmas is good news. It's what the angels came and said. And over the next several weeks, we're going to be thinking about this good news. And I just want to tell you where we're going to go, and I'm going to show you the, the screen of where we're going to go over the next several weeks. These are the big ideas, the big takeaways we're going to try to unpack here together. The way we're going to try to wrap our minds around this good news is in the context of spiritual warfare. Perhaps not the most common of Christmas series topics. I get that. However, coming out of and looking and just recently thinking about what it was the serpent did or, the, or Satan in the form of a serpent did and the, the, the sworn war he then aims at and undertakes against God's very good creation, I think it was appropriate in that sense, but also in the sense of, I think this is something we just need to hear right now. I think this is something that we need to be reminded of right now. Because I think, and as I look at our church, I see us under attack. I see families under attack. I, I see a little baby under attack. I see relationships under attack attack and in some ways it should not surprise us well in every way it should not surprise us because Peter tells us in his epistle don't be surprised but I think it also should not surprise us as we just consider some of the ways that we see God moving some of the ways that we see God working and there's two big errors that you can make whenever you're thinking about spiritual warfare. The first is to act like there is no spiritual war. 
that there is no enemy, that everything is all what we would call naturalistic, and it's what you can see, it's what you can touch, just what you can hear and taste, whatever your five senses can give you, that's all there is. And so there is no spiritual warfare or spiritual dimension, and there is no enemy. That's one major error that you can make. The other is that everything that goes wrong is the result of spiritual warfare. That the fact that the, the, the sun wasn't shining today is because there was a demon blocking the sun. It's this, it's this paranoia, if you will, that there's demons lurking around every stone waiting to trip people that walk by. That's the other error that's just equally as devastating because one, on the it doesn't exist side, we as believers become and allow ourselves to not use the very tools and weapons that God has given us. On the other side, where we think there's a demon lurking everywhere, we become paralyzed by fear. We've got to avoid those as we go. And the way we're going to do it is we're going to unpack these four big takeaway ideas. This morning, the idea is to listen to your commanding officer. I'm going to use some warfare, military language to try to help us get our minds wrapped around this. Because that's the language the scriptures use. Listen to your commanding officer. So just to summarize that, like if you walk out of here this morning and you go, I really think Pastor Tim just told us that we should read our Bible more. You got the big idea. Like you got it. You nailed it. Next week we're going to unpack the truth that your enemy, our enemy, is weaponless. We'll step into that just a little bit today, but we'll unpack that further next week. Third week, which will actually be the fourth Sunday because of the kids program that hops in there, we're going to look at how we put our armor on. And on Christmas Eve, we're going to unpack what it looks like to live free. But in thinking of listening to our commanding officer, I would submit to you that one of the places, foremost places, we will see spiritual warfare happen is in the area of truth. And that affects everything. It's the first question the serpent came asking the woman. Did God really say? It's a question of truth. Did God really say? So this is not a question, again, that should surprise us that we still find ourselves wrestling with the same things. But the question of truth, did God really say? We're going to look this morning at what God has said about at least two of the reasons that Jesus came. But he came, and Christmas is about this good news. And the angels came and said, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all of the people. That word good news is where we get our word gospel from. It's where we get our English word evangelism from. You could translate that. It would be a rough translation, but you could say, I bring you the evangelism of great joy. I bring you the gospel of great joy. Christmas is about this good 
news, but good news or the gospel is about a Savior. What was the content of this news? Well, the very next verse, the angels keep declaring, For unto you was born this day in, a sa- in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. The good news, the content of the news that was brought was that a Savior was there. But here we have to stop and pause for a minute because the idea of a Savior actually then implies there's bad news somewhere in the equation. Because I don't need a Savior unless I need saving. And salvation is only needed if death is both promised and imminent. So think about it this way. If I jump into the deep end of the pool and find myself treading water, having gone under, at that point, because I know how to swim, I don't need somebody to jump in and save me. When I was a lifeguard in high school, we were trained to determine whether or not the person jumping off the diving board needed saving. And you'd look at their body language, how, how quickly and how much flailing is happening, how much splashing takes place after the initial splash in the water. If there's a lot, they might be in distress. Is there any yelling happening? Did they ever come back up? These are all the types of things that as a lifeguard, you're supposed to be watching and observing as somebody jumps into the water to determine whether or not you're getting wet as well. And if that person knew how to swim, steadied themselves after they broke the water's surface and began to move to the edge of the pool, they didn't need saving There wasn't any bad news. They weren't in distress. But contrast that with the idea of floating somewhere in the Atlantic Ocean. You might be actually using the same type of skills to keep yourself afloat. But if there's no sign of rescue, if a boat begins to come into view, that's good news. That Coast Guard ship with lifeguards is good news to the person drowning or potentially, eventually drowning in the ocean because death is both promised and imminent. And so the good news of the gospel implies that there's a bad news element as well. And it's that we need saving and that we have a sin problem. And so to that end, Christmas is about sin. Christmas is about my sin. It's about the sin that I was, the sin nature that I was born with, and then the sin that I have just committed, confirming the nature that I was born with. And we unpacked these things over the last several weeks and thought about how I did not, with any of my children, teach them how to take something that wasn't theirs. I've not once, with any of my children, sat them down and told them how to tell a lie. In fact, we teach our children the very opposite because what they come with is a predetermined, built-in, hardwired disposition towards untruthfulness. And so, did you do that to your brother? No? Okay, you need to be a truth teller. Yes. It's often how those conversations go. Because they're most naturally going to gravitate away from truth. We don't just have a sin nature. We also do things that confirm it. And Christmas is about 
that. It's about Jesus coming to, to deal with that. It's what Will and Sarah just read and how at the cross, God's holiness and his righteousness and his justice were, were satisfied by the perfect sacrifice of Jesus to where then he was free to be gracious and loving and merciful and kind and compassionate. Christmas is both good news and it is bad news and it is about God fulfilling the promise that a serpent crusher was coming. What we'll look at this morning is two elements of this good news, two elements of what Christ came to do, that be destroy and reconcile. We'll actually take them in inverted order as they're on the screen. We'll look first at reconcile and secondly at destroy, but we're going to then step into and think about how that affects our battle that still exists because the enemy is still active. He is destroyed, as we will see soon, but nonetheless still active. So before we go any further and hop into John, 1 John chapter 3, let's pray, and then we'll go to the text. Father God, we come now and just ask that you would come and, and be gracious to us in, in helping us understand your word. God, help us to believe that your word is true and that that's the source of truth. That's where we can go and find absolute truth. That, that, can, be, that, that can be an anchor that we attach ourselves to so that we are not tossed to and fro by every wave that would come and have an alternate truth or a falsehood or whatever that may look like. God, help us to not stray far from your word, but to be those who, more than anything, first and foremost, listen to their commanding officer. So God, we pray now that you would speak and do so clearly through my words, give them clarity, I pray and ask, and as we listen and as we think and as we wrestle with these things. Help us to understand what it is that you've said. It's in Jesus' good name, I pray. Amen. Well, 1 John chapter 3, we're going to hop in and out of two different verses. And we're going to look a lot at what the New Testament has to say then about how these things flesh themselves out. And so I want us to look first at verse 5 of 1 John chapter 3. John writes, you know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. And so the, the reason, one of the reasons John gives for the appearing of Jesus is to take away sins. That word appear means to cause to be seen or to make known. It gets translated elsewhere as, as manifested or it's the idea of revealing. John's talking about the reason Jesus became the God-man in flesh, the reason why he was born of Mary, the reason why he laid aside the glory of heaven and took on the likeness of man and humbled himself was to take away sins. 
Now that word to, after the word appeared, it looks like an insignificant word, but it's actually a word that has tremendous significance to it. Because it's a word that speaks to purpose. And it's actually the Greek word that is translated here as to, that elsewhere gets translated as so that, or for the purpose of. John here is telling us one of the purposes that Jesus came and says that it was to take away sins. Now that word take away, that's an aggressive word to be quite honest. It's translated elsewhere and has the idea of destruction. And we could use the word destroy in place of the words take away. The reason he appeared was to destroy sin. That word takeaway shows up in what the crowd chants when Pontius Pilate, whom archaeologists have just found one of his signet rings, if you haven't seen that this past week. As he stands before the crowd and offers them Barabbas or Jesus, it's recorded they say, give us Barabbas away destroy that man. That's what they shouted. The same word, take away. And they weren't saying, hey, put him back in prison. They weren't saying, hey, we don't want to look at him anymore. Why don't you take him back inside? No, they, in other gospel accounts, were told, cried out, crucify him. The away means destroy. Destroy that Man, give us Barabbas. It's an aggressive word. It's an aggressive language. It's actually what John the Baptist says that the Apostle John records in his gospel account. The next day he saw, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away, same word, the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb of God who destroys the sin of the world. And because our sin is destroyed when we place our faith and trust in Jesus, we are then reconciled to God. So God and sinners are reconciled because of the work of Jesus Christ in destroying or taking away our sin. And it's exactly what the Advent reading just was this morning. That's how God can be holy and righteous and just and still be loving and merciful and compassionate because Jesus took our sin upon him and he paid for it. And then God considers it separated as if the east is from the west. So we find ourselves reconciled to God on the basis of Christ's work in taking away our sin. That's how we become children of God. Because in the fullness of time, Paul tells us in Galatians 4, God sent his son to be born of a woman, to be born under the law, to redeem those under the law so they might receive adoption as sons and daughters of God. See, there's a, there's a child aspect to it now. And we're not going to get to 1 John 3, verse 10, but if you would look ahead, you actually see the words born again of God or born of God, and the word seed show up. 
That's language that refers and looks back to the very language in Genesis 3 where from the woman a seed would come. An enmity will be between your seed, the serpent, and her seed. And we trace that seed through the Old Testament very briefly a few weeks ago. But when Christ came and he now gives new birth, that seed no longer is ethnic. It's spiritual. And so believers are then told to that they have the seed of God in them. Been born again. We're now a child of God and we have his seed. The issue is no longer ethnicity the way it was in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, but it now has become one of faith and trust in Jesus Christ. God came in Christ to reconcile, to destroy our sin and reconcile us to the Father. But that's not all John tells us in chapter 3 that Jesus came to do. Look with me at verse 8. John says this, whoever makes a practice of Sinning, that idea there is consistently sinning, habitually sinning. Their, their lifestyle, their entire orientation and disposition of mind is for and bent towards sinning is of or from the devil. For, here's the explanation of why that statement is true, the devil has been sinning from the beginning. But the reason... The Son of God was, Son of God appeared, was to, again, there's that word, was for the purpose of, was to destroy the works of the devil. So we have another reason given to us about why Christ came. And this word destroy is actually different than the word take away in verse 5 that I told you could be translated as destroy. This word destroy has actually the idea of, of bonds being loosened. So think of it as, as, as if you were wearing shackles or handcuffs. And you're in bondage in that sense. Those bonds are loosened. Is what John is saying. The reason the Son of God appeared, the reason He was revealed, the reason He came in the form of Jesus, born of Mary, was to destroy or to loose the bonds of the devil. It's the idea of being untied, set free. And what he sets free, what he unties, is the works of the devil. Now, as I mentioned here just a few brief minutes ago, I think the foremost and primary work of the devil is the work of questioning truth. Did God actually say? It's the very first question he asks the woman. Did God actually say that? So there's going to be a temptation then to distrust and question God's word. And we're still going to wrestle with that and, and fight and war against that. But that is his foremost and primary objective. His greatest sin. 
he that was sinning from the beginning. His greatest sin was the rejection of God. And his greatest desire is now to lead you and I and everyone else in the rejection of God. And we don't know exactly when Satan or the angelic host was created. But if we know from Genesis 1-1 that in the beginning there was only God and that he created everything else and that and at the end of that six-day creation week, God pronounces everything very good, it stands to reason that at some point in those six days, God created the angelic host. Genesis 1, 2, and 3 does not record that for us. There's actually not a specific place in the scriptures that that is stated, but that's just tying together some logical, truthful ideas from a few different texts. So somewhere after day 6... After Genesis 2 ends and before Genesis 3 begins, Satan rejects God. And he leads what theologians believe to be about a third of the angelic host in rejection and rebellion against God. And so they fall. And he now... Is only concerned with one thing. You and I rebelling against and rejecting God. Which leads to our eternal death. And the reason the Son of God came, the reason Jesus appeared, was to destroy the works of the devil. Christ destroys the stronghold of Satan and so believers are no longer in bondage to sin rather we've been set free Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that the god of this world Satan has blinded unbelievers from seeing the truth He's bound their hands by nature, they're bound into sin, and he has blinded their eyes from seeing the truth and the beauty of Jesus Christ. Why is prayer such a huge aspect in evangelism and Christ-centered witness? Because we are pleading with God to use his spirit to unblind, remove the blinders of those who have been blinded. Salvation is a supernatural work of God and God alone. The words you and I say do not carry the power to save anyone. But God uses that good news to remove the blinders of his children. They place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And so there's a transferring that now happens. There's an awakening that takes place. The dead become alive. There's an allegiance that shifts from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son, or I should say the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son, Colossians 1 verses 13 and 14. But I want to show you a text from Ephesians 2. We've been looking at this over the last several weeks. It should not look unfamiliar to you. But here Paul talks about dead men and women becoming alive. And he describes who the unbelievers are and what it is they do. That's you and I before Christ. What we were doing. 
dead in our trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, that would be the devil, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Let me highlight a couple of those big ideas for you that we might see them a little bit more clearly. Before we had placed our faith and trust in Jesus, we were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's work at work in the sons of disobedience. Jesus came to destroy that work. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, were by nature children of wrath. There's something really important in that bottom section. What that bottom section speaks to in part is that you and I, though we were following the prince of the power of the air, we were also making choices in active rebellion against God. So we don't get to stand up and say, well, the devil made me do it. No, because it was the passions of my flesh and the desires of my body and the desires of my mind that were contrary by nature to what God had said and revealed in his word and who he is that I followed. And this is part of why, come Revelation chapter 20, Satan and his demonic host are bound for a thousand years in what's known as the millennial kingdom. It is to remove, in part, to remove the devil made me do it as an excuse for my sin. Because the devil and his demonic host will have no influence during those thousand years, and Jesus Christ will rule and reign in bodily form on the earth for those thousand years. And what will happen at the end of those thousand years is that there will be a host of believers that will go into the new heavens and new earth, but there will be a host of unbelievers that will rise up in rebellion against God at the end. And with Satan and his demonic host being bound... There is plenty of sin in this person to rebel. It is not that the devil made me do it. He might have prompted. He might have tempted. He certainly encourages. But the responsibility doesn't ever get shifted on him. That's what Eve did following Adam's example. What happened here? Oh, the woman you gave me did this. To the woman, he asked the same question. Oh, it was the serpent. And he takes all three of them to task. See, Jesus came, though, to destroy this, to loosen the bounds. Now, here, I also want us to understand that we can't just hear the word sin and think of passions of the flesh and carrying out the desires of the body and the mind in the really egregious sins that oftentimes we can think of. It's not that they don't count, it's that that's not the sum total. So we can't just think of murder then as part of it, or adultery as part of it, or lying, or cheating, or stealing. I mean, we can't just go to the top ten commandments and think of those as the only things. Our community group was talking about this a couple weeks ago in follow-up to discussion of Genesis chapter 3. And the conversation was about the, the giving 
person who's an unbeliever. And I think we all know those people. People that are not believers, but are some of perhaps the most generous people you might know. I couldn't say it the other day either. Philanthropists. People who have resources and wealth and choose to use them with benevolence and generosity. And we look at that from a human's perspective, and this isn't wrong, it's, it's actually quite understandable, and we would make a difference between that person and the murderer. There's, there's nothing wrong with making that distinction here at our level. But if our sin is for mostly a rebellion against and rejection of God, for the benevolent, generous person to be benevolent and generous and yet not submit themselves to Jesus Christ, they are still rejecting and rebelling against God. They're just doing so with a smile and open hands. But it's still the rejection and the rebellion against their creator. And Jesus came to destroy these things. He came to make the dead alive. He came to change our allegiances. And so we are no longer a part of the domain of darkness, but have been transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. So what happens now as believers for the first time, we find ourselves in the midst of a fight. If you think when you placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, if you were old enough to maybe have the conscious ability to think about that, you look at new believers who are older when they come to know the Lord, they will tell you that it got harder. Because now they're fighting. Now there's something inside of them, the Holy Spirit who is going to reveal to them the sin that they would want to say yes to. There's a war that now begins to be undertaken. Because no longer are our hands tied where we just find ourselves saying yes to these things. But the bonds have been loosened. Now, the greatest threat the devil has is the threat of eternal death. That's the greatest threat he has. It's not temporal death, although those things do go hand in hand. Temporal death is going to occur all the way up until that millennial kingdom and will not be a part of the new heavens and the new earth, but it is eternal death that is his greatest threat. And Hebrews 2.14 tells us that Jesus came to destroy the one who has the power over death. So that those who trust in Christ are no longer afraid of dying. I read this morning from Phil and Sarah Martin. If you don't get their email, they're one of our missionaries. He writes awesome, awesome emails. Last month or a couple weeks ago, he wrote an email about serving in the midst of a closed country. He did a follow-up here, and it just came across my desk here this morning. But he talks about how he, as a missionary in a country where it's illegal to be a missionary, walks that line. 
And he said this, he had three things to say. He said, look, at at first as Americans, the worst thing that could happen to us is deportation. The citizenship we hold because of our birth protects us to a certain degree. And we can risk everything without really risking anything permanent. Wait, put that in a spiritual context. The new birth that we have, the citizenship we have in heaven, as Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 3, means that we get to risk everything because we're not actually risking anything permanent. Second, he said, we don't have any assurance that we'll be able to stay here another day. So I don't be faithful with each fleeting moment. Well, that works as well. Lastly, he kind of pushes that idea a little further. None of us are assured the next minute. Christians don't need to work in a closed country for urgency to run through their veins. Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. And his, the greatest weapon he has is the threat of eternal death. And for those that have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that threat is removed. It's gone. It's part of how we're set free to then abandon and risk everything for the sake of the gospel. But even though the works of the devil have been destroyed, he is still very much alive and active. And you and I need to have a wartime mentality about how we live so that we can be ready and prepared. There's a couple different places in the scriptures where we get a glimpse of how the activity of Satan looks. Here in regards to false apostles and false teachers, Paul says this, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. It brings to mind what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 about beware of wolves in sheep's clothing. And Paul says, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, because Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And so sometimes it comes and it looks close. But I would again submit to you, the issue is truth. Which is what the issue was there in 2 Corinthians 11. False apostles are not teaching truth. They're teaching lies that sounded plausible. Perhaps sounded good. But are no less lies. There's another place that Peter gives us some ways to think about the activity of Satan, or here the devil, as he says, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So is he an angel of light or is he a roaring lion? Well, quite frankly, yes, he's both. And he's a destroyed foe, but he is no less active. So what you and I do in this wartime mentality matters. This is why the New Testament places such an emphasis on being aware of false teachers. Jesus said it in Matthew 7. It shows up 
time and time again throughout all of the New Testament epistles. In fact, many of them were written because false teachers had influenced churches and those writers were writing to correct the errors, which is what John 3 is, or 1 John chapter 3 in all of the chapters. It's a letter from the Apostle John to the church in Ephesus to set straight truth because error was being taught. This is why elders are told to guard doctrine. Why they must be able to teach sound doctrine, identify false doctrine, and guard and have the responsibility to guard the church from false doctrine. It's because truth foremostly, is what's at stake. Satan wants you to distrust and question God. He wants you to rebel and reject him, and that is going to happen as he influences and tries to get you to distrust and question God. Questions such as, does God really love me? Is grace really unmerited? We can get all sorts of messed up with that question. Does God really love me? Or do I have to do some things in order for him to love me? Is his grace really unmerited? Is it, is it free? Am, am I really forgiven? I don't know that stuff that, you know, the, the junk from before, is it really forgiven and taken care of? Satan wants nothing more than to just to keep accusing you of those things that you have already confessed. And it's a question of truthfulness. Because 1 John 1 9 would tell us if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse and forgive us of all unrighteousness. So, what is true? God's faithfulness and his justice and his word that tells us as we confess, he forgives and cleanses. Satan wants us to question and distrust whether or not obedience really will yield joy and satisfaction. And that's where we find ourselves, I think, at least personally, we find, I find myself most frequently just at war with my own flesh desires. The flesh, our body, Paul tells us in Romans 8, is the one yet to be redeemed part of us. There still exists a capacity in my mind and my body's desires for sin. Not just a capacity, oftentimes a longing. So do I believe God's word that the joy and satisfaction I really am ultimately desiring is found through obedience to him or will be found somewhere else? It's everything the book of Ecclesiastes is about. And God's Word and God himself as a good father, when he tells us to obey, is not trying to keep us from good things. He's trying to lead us to greater things. But Satan wants us to distrust and question that. Satan wants, though, 
while you're distrusting and questioning God, to trust yourself. And we hear these things actually often in pop culture and in the world around us. The first would be just do what feels good. Just do what feels good. I mean, that's, that's the banner cry of the sexual moral revolution that our culture is going through at the moment. Just do what feels good. Now, let's acknowledge here for a minute that feelings are real, but they may not always be truthful. You've got to discern whether or not that feeling, which is real, is true or not. So to do what feels good might actually lead you down a path of untruth. Got to do some work there. But secondly then, very similarly, we're told to just trust our hearts. God's word says the heart is deceitful above all things. It is desperately wicked. Who can understand it? So just go and trust that. God's word tells us to trust his word. God tells us to trust his word. And so Satan wants you to, at the same time, distrust God, but trust yourself. And this is why Paul tells us in Romans 12 that we are to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. And we are to not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but to be transformed through the renewing of our minds. That idea of being conformed is the idea that will take place when we all make Christmas cookies. We're going to roll out the dough, we're going to take the Santa cookie cutter, we're going to stamp it down on the dough, we're going to pull Santa out, we're going to bake them, we're going to frost them, and then we're going to eat them. We are conforming the dough to the pattern of the cookie cutter. And Paul says, no, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I mentioned to you a couple weeks ago that I've been reading a book, a biography about George Washington in his, his pre-revolutionary war days. And it was fascinating in some of the accounts of the battle, and the battles I should say, that are given. The accounts include the fact that the drummers led the way and the fife players marched ahead. And I found myself just thinking of, of just kind of the tactics of warfare in that sense. Kind of wondering why an army would want to announce its presence to an enemy by having Mike Thompson play the snare drum as we march forward. And then I dug a little deeper. And learned that it's not just how they marched. It didn't just keep them marching on tempo. But there were specific types of rhythms that would be played on a snare drum that would tell the army whether to turn right or left. There were specific types of snare drum rhythms that would tell them whether or not it was time to stop or start, whether or not they could take advantage of an opportunity to relieve themselves or go and have a drink of water. The fife, very similar. There were certain tunes that would be played that would give them battle instructions. 
And so what seems counterintuitive to the idea of warfare and not or and having stealth was actually the lifeline for these armies. Because it was how they had communication with their commanding officer. It's how they received instructions. There wasn't walkie-talkies at this time. There wasn't earpieces that each of those men in the unit had that they were able to communicate back and forth to one another. This was their lifeline. This is how they stayed in communication with their commanding officer. And that's what God's word is for us. The works of the devil have been destroyed. We have been reconciled to God. But in the midst now of this battle that we find ourselves in, as the dead have been made alive and our allegiances have been transferred, how we listen matters. On the back of your notes page, I provided for you a a scripture reading plan for this month. It starts today and goes through the end of December, up until, I should say, December 31st, and includes the Gospel of John and the Epistle of John. There's also each week a verse to memorize. See, we're not just people of the Word because that's what people at church do. We're people of the Word because that's our lifeline. That's how we listen to our commanding officer. That's how we discern truth from error. So the works of the devil may be destroyed, and they are, but he is still alive and active and wants nothing more than to get us off track and our focus distracted and will do so by questioning truth. Let's be people of the word. Let's be people who want nothing more than truth. And start first and foremostly with God's word as the ultimate source of truth. Let's pray. Father God, we, we pray. I pray and ask that you would give us a renewed desire to be people of the book and your word. That we would want to know truth. Because as Jesus says, the truth would set us free. God, help us to be able to discern error. And hear the voice of our commanding officer in the midst of the war and follow well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.